on the road, Nicholas. Yes, we are. I'm driving, actually. Yep, you're driving, and uh, this is a late release for the normal Tuesday Pick and Bones episode. It's because I planned to get Nicholas on for this week to talk about perennial food plots, and we were going to do that yesterday, so we could have had this all edited up in time for you this morning, but... Uh, one of our podcasts that we're going to do for our work podcast, which is the what podcast, Nicholas? The Prairie Farm Podcast. Which uh, is doing quite well. Yeah. The Prairie actually, Farm Podcast. We're do- I'm doing a series on Iowa water, which is what we're doing an interview for here today. Yeah. Yeah. So we're on the road. We're going to talk to a couple guys who um, have done a lot of stuff on their own, but were featured in what I say is the best book I've, re- I've ever read. Um which is Tending Iowa's Land. and uh, they Best both of six, actually. I've <laughs> never read three of which are Dr. Seuss. Actually, one of, the, one of my favorite things I love to do to annoy my sister is um, I tell her that I read David Copperfield by... Um, uh, what's his name? <laughs> the really famous writer. The guy who did A Christmas Carol. Oh, uh, Charles uh, Dickens. Charles Dick. Yes, Scrooge. I was about to say Scrooge wrote, <laughs> wrote that book. <laughs> but uh, so I always tell my sister that. But it was like the uh, abridged <laughs> kids the, version. The abridged kids version. <laughs> I read it in sixth grade. I'm like, yeah, actually, when I read uh, uh, David Copperfield, <laughs> and she just gets I am so sophisticated. <laughs> yeah, she gets so annoyed with me. But uh, anyways, no, Tending Iowa's Land, great book, and I am a reader. Don't believe what Nicholas said. I get through a lot <laughs> of books. He is. He reads a lot. Um, he, he, he reads two-thirds of a lot of books. <laughs> <laughs> that's, right, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty accurate. Uh, but uh, anyways, excellent book. Um, we're going to interview a couple of their guys today. And Nick is working on a series talking about Iowa water quality. And uh, as you uh, can gather, we're both kind of conservation uh, nuts, I guess you could say. Um, and uh, I think sometimes people can look at that in a negative light. Um, we like to just choose sides on things, and I think that's dumb because how can one side totally represent what you think and believe in every single way? And uh, I, I just don't think it can. But we get pitched that by our politicians and everyone else who benefits from making us feel that follow way. the money <laughs> that's right and so i think uh we're going to do a little bit more in-depth conversation talk for this week on picking bones and that's why we call it picking bones because we have bones to pick with things so it might be a little controversial but we're going to tackle food plotting today i do work for a uh, prairie seed company hoxie native seeds based here in uh, south central iowa it's a cool place and, yeah and uh we grow uh, mostly flowers, but we grow, I think, uh, what is it, Nick, maybe eight different species of prairie grasses. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, in terms of pounds, it's not even close. It's grasses. Yeah, we right, right, grass, right. But, but as far as diversity goes, definitely yeah. flowers. Which is, that's how that's I how think. prairies w- yeah. are. And, and I wonder what uh, the actual ratio w- was to that. Because when you start counting sedges... There's like a hundred different kinds of sedges. You yeah, know? yeah, that's a good point. Uh-huh. And there are there are some other like weird grass species that you don't see very often. Like uh, I just saw one uh, that uh, 
our friend Laura Walter from the Tallgrass Prairie Center up at University of Northern Iowa posted. It was a bottle something, like bottle rye or bottle something. Bottle brush sedge? Yeah. Sedge. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I can't remember what it was. We have some on our farm in that wetland area. Okay. Yep. So that was a new one I just learned about. It's technically a grass, grouped as a grass. Sedges are not technically grasses. However, they are grouped as grasses hmm. um, often. And yep. uh, in fact, uh, one of the ways, so Carol taught me this, one of the ways you can tell the difference is the stem on a sedge is angular it's like a triangle yep whereas on uh grass you know it's rounded so if you put a blade of sedge in your hand in your fingers and you like roll it you'll feel it like You're right it, it doesn't roll like a ball it rolls like a triangle would which right is like clunk clunk you know you feel the edges and then from a practical standpoint the difference is that um you can use a grass herbicide on a uh, sedge field and not harm your sedges because they will not take up that grass herbicide. Very like handy. A, like a grass. But anyways, that's besides the point. So we're here to talk about perennial food plots. We, we grow all this stuff. We put together these mixes. If you go to our website, hoxandafcs.com, you can find what we call hunting mixes, um, and uh, we'll even go species-specific. Hey, this is a quail mix. This is a pheasant mix. This is a deer mix. And uh, what we're trying to address there are two things. Okay, We call it a food plot because, well, that's what most people think of, right? That's what we've educated the hunter to know. But another term that you should know as a hunter is habitat. And that's what, what we also try to pair with uh, our food plot mixes. We try to pair in that habitat um, side of it. And so when we think of traditional food plots, we're thinking, you know, another monoculture, usually, not always, but usually, you know, some guy might do like a, a uh, brassicas mix, okay? Um, well, there sorghum. Be, I hear yep, sorghum a lot. Yep, sorghum. Even a corn plot or yep. a bean plot, soybean plot. Oats occasionally. Yep. Those are all different things that, that people will do. And they work. You know, I'm not here to tell you that they don't work. They, they are very effective. But I think what uh, is maybe a better criticism is they don't do as much for you as what uh, other options could. So you can get more out of it if you choose some different options. So like with standing corn, obviously you are getting some habitat value. A lot of people don't like hunting in October in Iowa because there's so much standing corn, whereas I love hunting Iowa in October because there is so much standing corn. Because you got to look at it as, yes, it might make the deer a little bit harder to see and find, but uh, there's going to be more deer on your property if you have standing corn because you have more habitat. And they're going to leave that corn. They're not in there eating that those corn i mean they will do something i just heard on a podcast recently some guy said he noticed that deer were browsing on corn leaves but that is not like a preferred food source they're going to come out and they're going to find those forbs and that woody browse in the evenings and uh you'll be able to take advantage of that. that's besides the point if you want to get the maximum benefit though of giving them that food and that habitat we strongly suggest going to a perennial food plot. Ooh, um, love that. Yeah, and and here's just a couple different reasons Nick and I are going to talk about. So, 
first of all, Nick, I'll let you go first. You sell this stuff all the time. What is the first benefit you think of with a perennial food plot that oh, you're not going to get from just a stand of corn or a stand of sorghum or soybeans even? Um, oh, there's so many things. I, but you could sum a lot of them up in the term ecological value. Uh, so basically you're not – when you plant a food plot – uh, like monoculture food plot, you have one purpose for that food plot. And it basically does just about that one purpose and nothing else. But if you plant a perennial food plot with a lot of mixed variety, you get hundreds or thousands of purposes. You get all sorts of species coming in and then other species feed on those species. And then you start getting, you know, better bacteria and better biodiversity and, and, um, the carbon in the ground builds up and, and the nitrogen in the ground builds up. And, and so you're starting to get this, um, this really healthy soil, which attracts, uh, you know, all sorts of soil insects and worms. And then you've got your above ground insects which attracts birds not to mention the seeds we put a lot of legumes you know you might think of just soybeans as your legumes but there's tons of them i think white wild indigo is a, uh, a legume you've got showy tick trefoil illinois tick trefoil partridge pea all sorts of uh legumes that will attract you know pheasants yeah. and quail and and um Illinois bundleflower, round-headed bush Illinois clover. bundleflower. I mean, it, these things will even attract, you start getting turkeys, you know, you plant these things. And now I know the big one is, is people are thinking about uh, whitetail. And uh, you have got, let's say they don't like 10 of the things you got in that mix. Well, it doesn't matter because you got 40. You got 40 different species thriving in that mix. And, and so I would say the ecological value, I can think of 10 others off the top of my head, but uh, I'd say that. Yeah, yeah, I, and probably the big one that I was going to focus on there is is the cross species benefits that you get you know yeah uh, most guys are putting in food plots for deer some not everybody but most guys are um, but man if all of a sudden now you can hunt that food plot for quail for pheasants or maybe even turkeys like Nick said now think of how much more value you're getting out of that than you would with your standard uh, food plot um Nick started mentioning a lot of these other benefits, soil quality uh, being a major one he focused on. And he's right, that does bring in better diversity, which brings in more food and brings in more wildlife. Um, but there's also the side where, uh, and I, we should talk about too, the habitat side, especially for deer, those tall grasses and mid, mid-height grasses like... Um, a side oats grama or a little blue stem those are going to provide excellent bedding cover and so if you're strategic where you put that food plot um, you're gonna you're gonna get from the legume species those a lot of those hang around uh, through the season <clears throat> I think it's specifically round-headed bush clover holds on to its seeds into like well into March from what I've done uh, research on it'll hold seed well into March on the plant so you're talking you have a you know protein packed seed that's available above the snow level for deer going into March but then you also have that good bedding value now you're talking about having a reliable spot to hunt uh, during the late season 
and um, you also are going to have uh, a uh, reliable um, spot for shed hunting. And so you can mix kind of two of those things together by going to that perennial food plot uh, uh, consideration. So yeah. that's a that's a big advantage. But then also um, from a conservation standpoint, I once I was listening to uh, Mark Kenyon's show Wired to Hunt, which if you go back to episode 100, uh, we had Mark on uh, for that, and uh, Mark was a huge part of me learning how to hunt. Probably the number one resource I used. Uh, and um, Mark interviewed Kyle Leibarger, who uh, oh yeah, great had, interview. What what's his uh, Instagram page? Native in? Habitat Project. Yes, the Native Habitat Project on Instagram. If you're not following that, I strongly suggest you do. Um, he had him on to say, and he asked him this question. He's like, you know, there's all these shortcuts that hunters can take to have better habitat and can ha- have you know, improved food sources on their, on their hunting properties. Um, why should they play the long game though, and go with these native options of, for cover? So instead of planting giant miscanthus or planting Egyptian wheat or planting, um, pompous grass for their screens and stuff, why should they look to do natives? And he said, well, um, you know, some of those, like Egyptian wheat, isn't really a problem with, you know, with dominating an area. Pompous grass is. Yeah. Uh, giant miscanthus can be, despite the fact that they advertise it's a hybrid species. It'll spread on a rhizome. Um, so, yes, it's not it's not sexually reproducing, but it is growing up more plants off the root system. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it just... It's not because it doesn't actually spread that quickly. Its issue is it is not nothing can compete with it. Nothing. I mean, tall switchgrass and big bluestem can't compete with miscanthus. So it's it know, takes o- it takes want. over its little spot, you know, that it gets established in. And he said, when people when it becomes when or if it becomes an ecological problem down the road, and someone says, why do we have all of this uh, pompous grass everywhere? Why do we have all of this giant miscanthus everywhere? Why do we have maybe an invasive uh, flower species that, you know, like crown vetch, for instance, that's a legume, um, or bird's foot trefoil, that's a legume, mm-hmm. um, or legume, I think I pronounced it incorrectly. But anyways, uh, those, are, those are species that people could put and have success hunting over, but they're invasive, and they take over... Uh, an ecosystem and harm the ecosystem and then if someone says well why do we have those things and the answer is because hunters put them there how does that make us look as as uh, people who truly care about the landscapes that we're hunting on doesn't obviously look very good at all so when you're using a perennial stand for your food plots and your habitat covered and screens to get to your stand and so forth you're investing in a you know a better reputation for hunters going forward and as we know hunting is constantly under attack from uh people who think that it shouldn't exist and if Mm -hmm. we're causing ecological harm by introducing species that shouldn't be there or you're just shooting yourself in your own foot right yeah, yeah yeah we're we're 
creating more leverage for the opposition. So there's all kinds of reasons for it. Um, uh, you know, both from a practical standpoint for hunting, um, but also uh, for being in the public eye. And I will add this on the end here. Prairie's a lot of work, right, Nick? Yes. It's not, this isn't something you can just throw it on the ground and expect to have a, you know, a perfect stand that fall. Prairie, mm-hmm. Prairies took a long time to establish themselves on the landscape. And uh, they provided some of the best habitat the world has ever known. Uh, there's a whole book written about how Iowa was in the days of prairie called A Country So Full of Game. Yes, a hunting reference was made to describe how good of wildlife diversity and and numbers yeah. Iowa once had in a prairie landscape. And uh, uh, But it took a long time for that to get established. So it's going to take a long time to establish your own prairie. Usually about how long, Nick, can someone... Expected to take for well, a great stand. Well, three seasons, but I'd say about two, two and a half years. You'd have a yeah. really, you should have a really good stand after about two and a half years. And you're gonna have to hoe it. You're gonna have to do some backpack spraying for some of the weeds that are gonna be coming up in there that you want to keep out, especially non-native cool season grasses. Yeah, those are your biggest enemy as a hunter. You want to keep prairie grass in there because. Things like reed canary grass, smooth brome, Kentucky blue, those things come in and they form uh, like a turf. And quail and pheasants especially need bare soil so they can peck at insects, find seeds on the ground, yeah. that kind of thing. Well, and, and I would, I would, I want to counterpoint a little bit because you were saying it is quite, it is, it's not no work, that is for sure. But you also, you can't forget that. Uh, you're planting it once, so you're buying the seed once. Yes. And if you're willing to put that work in, and by work we mean prep the ground, plant it, keep it mowed the first year, uh, you know, just mowing once a month, and then adding, um, and then adding in there some specialty treatment, like Kent was saying, with uh, hoeing out some high invasives or uh, spraying, spot spraying if needed. If you're willing to do that work in the first couple of years. Your work will be very, very minimal for a decade or two, and uh, but what you will have in return is um, uh, what our good friend uh, Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter calls a full plate. So you've got a plate for the deer all year. Yeah. Um, and, and and so it for you to have that through a more conventional means of food plot. You have to be planting four times a year, three times a year at least, and that's just not. Yeah, think of the reali- think of you know not just the logistics of doing that, but and the expense of doing that, but also how intrusive that is to the wildlife when you're in there all the time. You know, once you get a good perennial food plot established, you put that front end work in, it takes care of itself really well for years and years to come. And, uh, you know, if you have a diverse enough prairie, you don't really have to worry about fertilizing, um, which that is not the case when you're growing corn. Um, The soil pH, you know, kind of takes care of itself, too, after enough time is is given. And uh, so your input costs go way down. 
and uh, your fuel costs and so forth, it it really starts to take care of itself. Plus, the the amount of intrusion that has to go into uh, maintenance and uh, prepping the ground and so yeah. forth, you know, it's just going to hunt better in the long run. So, yep, you got to fight for it early on, but in the long run, it's going to pay off and it's going to take care of you and it's going to lead to some better hunting opportunities for you. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for uh, joining me on this episode. Yeah. Uh, Nicholas here is my coworker, Auction AFC. He is a sales manager. If you would like to uh, make a purchase, what's the best way to do that? Oh, good Nicholas. question. I'd just go to hoxynativeseeds.com, and you can either shoot us a call or shoot us an email from there. That's probably the best way to do it. Yeah, and Nicholas will talk through it with you. Um, we work with, uh, well, you guys know that I'm obsessed with hunting, so Nick bounces hunting questions off me all the time. And as you know from listening to this podcast for the years that it's been running, I am very well connected to a lot of other guys that know a whole lot more than I do, and I bounce ideas off of them. Cool as well. guys, yeah. Yep. So uh, we will get you taken care of. Just give us a call, or uh, or send us an email, whatever you need to do, and uh, we'll make sure that you're taken care of based on your specific needs. Uh, remember, this podcast is presented by Spartan Forge. I've been using Spartan Forge like a fiend the last few days. Yeah. Caleb, yeah, I saw a project actually. Yeah, you were I'm using it, it for work even. Yep. Uh, uh, doing a, a plan for a customer at work, a client who is having us come in and do a bunch of habitat uh, work for them. And then also, Caleb and I are headed to Nebraska. We're going to go and uh, hunt some mule deer out in Nebraska, and we are planning that hunt. And uh, we're using Spartan Forge to kind of pick our spots where we're going to be. And we're also using our other sponsor of the show, good old east west hunts alex gruen our buddy that runs east west hunts he's uh, going to be renting us some gear giving us some insight uh, making helping us make some connections that we need to do to uh, have our best chance at success and uh, so really you know kind of a uh, twofer there with spartan forge and east west hunts you can find a link for spartan forge in these show notes or you can go to my uh uh link tree in my bio on instagram you'll find a link there as well you can download spartan forge for free and then subscribe to all the other uh unique services that they offer especially the deer behavior prediction which is uh just the top of its class so uh again you can find the link for that in the show notes or in my link tree on my instagram bio and then for east west hunts go to eastwesthunts.com and uh, you can connect with alex that way you can also find his social information in the show notes on this podcast and a link to his website there as well and uh, then last but not least if you find it and you get there and you shoot it and you tag it you got to get it taxidermied and there's nowhere better to do that than old barn taxidermy they will get it done the right way they will give you a quality mount that you're proud to show off to your friends and family nick you sell all this stuff but you're not a hunter yourself Yep. You ever been creeped out by bad taxidermy? Oof. Not not any that you have done. That's right. Because I go to Old Barn Taxidermy. But, uh, yeah, if you if you see bad taxidermy, you cannot unsee it. And you will not be satisfied with it. And That's as horrifying. I, and as I like to say, your wife won't let you hang it on the wall. So don't go wasting your money at subpar taxidermy work. Go to Old Barn Taxidermy. You can find... Uh, a link to their website in these show notes 
And uh, you should also go follow them on Instagram, too. There's all sorts of cool stuff that they're posting on there. And uh, you can uh, even go to my Instagram and see some of the work that they've done for me. Just really, really incredible work that they've done. So, again, big thank you to Old Barn for helping sponsor this podcast. Thank you to Spartan Forge for presenting the podcast and East West Hunts for all the support through the years as well. And a bigger thank you to you listeners for tuning in week after week and uh, making this podcast what it is. And a big thank you to you too, Nicholas, for uh, driving and for uh, being on the podcast. Yeah, that's what I do. Well, until next time, everyone, take care and take someone hunting.